This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, where I will be talking with Dr. Salim Ali. He's the chair of the Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences and the Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Energy and the Environment at the University of Delaware. We'll be talking about the critical role of aluminum in sustainability, its ecological impacts, and effective strategies for engineers seeking the delicate balance between project profitability and sustainability within their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Perry. I'm a leadership and career expert, and I'm the author of The Intentional Engineer. You can find more information about my work at jeff-berry.com. And this is the Engineering Career Coach Podcast brought to you by EMI, the first podcast dedicated to helping engineers and technical professionals with both their personal and professional lives. Now it's time to jump right into the main segment of our episode. Today, I have with me Dr. Salim Ali. Salim, welcome to the Engineering Career Coach Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. We'd love to learn more about you. Can you walk us through a little bit about your professional journey, specifically in the world of sustainability, and how it has helped shape your perspective to where you're at right now? I grew up in Pakistan, in a developing country, and, you know, I encountered a lot of day-to-day challenges in terms of how people were relating to natural resources, where they were getting their water, their food. And so I was very interested in having sustainable production systems just from my teenage years. And when I decided to go to college in the U.S., I wanted to major in environmental studies. And I was able to find a program where I was able to do a major in environmental studies. I spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, what is our relationship to the elements because my other major was chemistry, chemistry and environmental studies. And so I was always very interested in the periodic table, linking specific elements to how we relate to more sustainable trajectory. Later in life, I ended up working at General Electric uh, in industry. So I got a perspective working a lot with engineers, uh, and uh, understanding how you know engineers can become uh, very much in a sort of a tunnel vision approach where they're so focused on solving one particular problem that they sometimes don't get a systems perspective. And that's why the whole field of systems engineering developed to get engineers to think more broadly, laterally. And uh, so that's uh, been my journey in terms of uh, coming to where I'm at now, where I'm uh, head of Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences. And geography is a Big Ten discipline. It brings together physical science, engineering, as well as natural science and uh, also uh, social sciences. I see myself very much as an environmental system scientist, and that's kind of where I'm at now. Can you tell us more about what that entails and some of the challenges or problems that you're working on solving and and researching these days? 
you know, for example, day to day, the materials we consume, I'm interested in deep in the supply chain. Where do they come from? What are the impacts that their production and consumption have? And how can we think about making choices, looking at the broadest set of issues related to them? So if you're consuming an electronic device in some form, you use it daily, what are the materials that constitute that device? Where can we understand the mines that they came from and what were the impacts of the extraction, both on the environment and on the community? How can we mitigate that? And uh, then what can be comparative materials which we can use to produce similar kinds of items? So I have this kind of a vision of uh, sustainable supply chains that is what informs a lot of what I do. I love that, uh, the concept of sustainable supply chain. So you recently authored a, a book, uh, Soil to Foil, Aluminum and the Quest for Industrial Sustainability. Can you tell us a little bit more about this book and where this came from for you and what are the exposures and things you're hoping that it, it helps us understand? Because of my interest in chemistry and the elements, I was actually contacted by a publisher, Columbia University Press, who said, you know, you've written previous books about minerals and society. Can you do a deep dive on one element? And one element that we use a lot and has been neglected. And so I started thinking about, you know, could I write it on uh, copper or gold? Or And there have been books written on other elements and uh, have looked at sustainability issues from them. There are good books on carbon, for example, there hadn't been a book on aluminum in this kind of a sustainability fashion where uh, it looks at this metal and a deep dive, understands its industrial history. And so that's why I chose aluminum as that element. It's the most widely used metal in terms of the number of products that we make from it. It's also the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust. But there's also a very weird paradox that even though it's so abundant, it was one of the last metals to be isolated and made available for industrial uses. So, for example, tin and copper, we have had the Bronze Age, you know, going back thousands of years, where we had alloys of tin and copper, which we were using. Iron, of course, we've also used, we have the Iron Age. But aluminum, even though it was so abundant, but because of its chemistry, it was very difficult to isolate it. And Eventually, when we figured out how to do it, because it was so abundant in the Earth's crust, it suddenly ballooned into this massive commercial enterprise where we were making everything from aircraft to foil, essentially from aluminum. And you can see just on a day-to-day -day basis how much of your own daily um, product intake connects with aluminum, whether it's the skin of your laptop or the car you were riding in or, you know, even the sandwich your lunch is wrapped in. So, Tell us more about how aluminum then relates to sustainability. It's a very abundant element in the world. Now we've learned how to isolate and harness it. It's used all over the place in so many different products and, and things. So ecologically and sustainably, what are some of the consequences of extracting aluminum, using it, and how it gets perhaps recycled or not in our modern age. With aluminum, the sustainability connection is fascinating because aluminum illustrates what I call the material energy nexus very well. 
you know, a lot of times how we use materials is connected to the embedded energy in them or what energy is required to produce them. And uh, in the case of aluminum, because of the very strong bonds that aluminum has with oxygen, uh, it's very difficult to isolate aluminum as a metal. The sustainability dimension of aluminum required very high levels of energy to be used to extract it and to make sure that energy came from sustainable sources. So if you think about where are the major aluminum smelters in the world, they are close to major hydropower establishments. So in America, which the first aluminum company was Alcoa, which was started by Charles Hall, the man who actually invented the process to extract aluminum. He was an undergraduate student at Oberlin College in Ohio, where he worked. And it's a great you know, inspiration for undergrads who might be listening to your show that he developed this process just as an undergraduate research project. And he became the founder of Alcoa eventually because he was able to commercialize it. He became the CEO of Alcoa. And then uh, Alcoa had to situate its production facilities very close to cheap energy. So that's why some of the earliest smelters were near in upstate New York and Quebec where you had access to cheap hydropower. And that's just because the process of extracting the metal aluminum that we use in all of our products and things we think about just takes so much energy to put into that, to get it to. It's not just the aluminum comes out of the ground and then we melt it and what it's, you know, it's like, there's a lot more to that. Okay, so can you share some other stories or, or case studies from communities that have been affected by aluminum production? And especially with related to resilience and restoration, sustainability, and how we can do that well. So, you know, with aluminum, uh, because the energy level is so high to extract it, it also creates an economic incentive to recycle the metal more, which is another important uh, sustainability connection. But also, the location of bauxite mines is uh, in many areas where there it is often challenging to extract the ore, even though it is abundant overall in the Earth's crust, to have it economically viable to extract it, you need a certain kind of ore deposit. And most of the bauxite deposits have been in these areas where there has been deposition of layers of conglomerate material. And uh, that, in the case of the Americas, has been particularly in the Caribbean, in islands, in Jamaica, in Guyana, on the coast of South America, Suriname, these are places where there was historically a lot of bauxite. So there's a long history of bauxite extraction in Jamaica. Now people think of Jamaica as this tourist island, but actually a lot of Jamaica's industrial history has to do with sugarcane and bauxite aluminum mining. And even now, if you travel in Jamaica in the interior, you see the impact of the bauxite mining. A lot of the farmers who used to be able to farm for a range of fruits and other agricultural products were not able to recover once the mining was carried out because the soil did not have the same productivity. So in the book, I also talk about some of these other aspects of the aluminum trade, which were, were challenging, even though in other cases, aluminum provided us with remarkable technologies. It uh, provided, in some cases, also communities with a lot of employment opportunities. In, like, in Quebec, there was a town that was established by uh, Alcoa or the Canadian arm of Alcoa, which was called Alcan. 
And uh, this town, which was named after the second CEO of Alcoa and Arthur Vining Davis, he named it Arvida, the first two letters of his name, each of his names. And Arvida was like this utopian town that was built by a company to, you know, have very pristine kind of uh, existence for the community that was living there, uh, living close to nature, but also working in industry. And he had this vision for that. So it's fascinating. You had the negative stories, but you also had the positive stories. And that's one of the things I've tried to do in this book is to provide a very nuanced, balanced perspective, very pragmatic, as I'm sure your engineer audience would appreciate, not trying to just blast the industry for being polluters and so on, acknowledging the problems they had, but also recognizing all the contributions they made. There's always two sides to that, all those stories and everything, right? And just to, for clarification, if anyone's not familiar, describe to us what bauxite is and we're talking about bauxite mining and, and stuff like that. Yeah, bauxite is the ore, the primary ore from which aluminum is extracted. It's primarily aluminum oxide materials that are, it's a mineral essentially, but the mineral is it's tied up in these kind of conglomerate rocks. And a lot of these deposits are in tropical environments. So you have got, as I said, in Jamaica, Suriname, Guyana, the largest bauxite reserves now are in the West African country of Guinea, which I also visited. And uh, Guinea is, uh, is featured in the book as well, in terms of what that could mean in the long-term development if they were able to use this resource smartly for revenue generation. There's so many phases to this. We mine it, we extract it, we use it, we smelt it, we put it into products and then recycle and all these different things, right? And we're just talking about aluminum here. We've got engineers here who will probably a lot of them are or will use aluminum in their product designs, right? So how would you talk to them about kind of steering the, the narrative and the story towards moving towards a more circular, sustainable economy when we're talking about aluminum or other related materials? And what impact can engineers have in that process? With engineering, I think what's most important is that you have to think about the full life cycle of the material. And there are tools in engineering. We use life cycle analysis, which I talk about in the book, where you can evaluate the impact of the product over its full life cycle from mines to markets to hopefully a reuse, refurbishment, recycling. That goes into product design as to how well it's going to be. So for metals to be extracted from the materials, you need to have modularity so that it's easy to take apart the, the device that you have constructed. All this goes into that process. The engineers should also be thinking more about not just recycling, but remanufacturing of products. It's very important that we try to reduce the total footprint through not just trying to take the whole metal out and putting it through the smelter, but using the device again in a more constructive way. So that's kind of the way I've approached this issue. And uh, there are enough resources now for engineers to be able to work through that. Engineers are obviously fighting against, and companies in general, fighting against the idea of like economic viability, you know, in the products and things that they create. And and sometimes that feels like that fights against sustainability initiatives and, and desires. So how do we balance that and strike that balance 
in their projects and their products that they're creating or designing or in the organizations as a whole? I mean, they need to have the long view. Increasingly, companies are recognizing that the economic viability has to be thought of in terms of your long-term reputation as a company, whether you're sustainable or not. The triple bottom line, as they say, in much of the industry, we have to think about, you know, people, profits, and planet, all three. And uh, engineers uh, need to recognize that's part of your optimization problem. You know, engineers are supposed to learn optimization, and optimization has to include variables uh, that are about the environmental and social impacts just as much as they are about the optimization of energy usage or material usage and so on. So sustainability, the short-term price, long-term price, and viability of your company as a whole, we're trying to optimize all those things together, not just one particular factor, because we need to look at the big picture of where we're at now, what we need to accomplish in the short term, but also long-term effects on the company, the organization, the economy as a whole, and certainly the environment sustainability impacts as well. So love that look at it. So Salim, at this point, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to go to our Take Action Today segment. And when we come back, we're going to get one final piece of actionable advice for you, the listeners, when we come back. So we'll be back in just a moment. Now it's time for our Take Action Today segment of the show. Salim, we've discussed a number of things, and I know you've opened my mind to some different aspects of engineering and design and materials that I hadn't thought of before, and probably many things for our listeners as well. As we end off here, what's a final piece of actionable advice for engineers who are working on designs, deciding on materials, so that they can take this balanced sustainability approach as they try and design great products as well? So I would advise all engineers to first consider where did the material they're going to use come from originally? And it's not just the supplier. I'm talking about deep in the supply chain. If you're going to use a catalyst and you're going to use a particular metal in the catalyst, find out where is that metal usually mined and figure out what are the ways in which you could have an impact in terms of what kind of material you are using in the long run. And many times you can find alternatives to materials depending on where they are coming from. So I think that kind of an approach will make them much more likely to design products that are far more sustainable in the long run. Look for alternatives. There will be limitations, of course, because there are certain chemical properties which cannot be replaced. But we will see that happening. I mean, with lithium-ion batteries, we are seeing now people are thinking much more about sodium-ion batteries. There are trade-offs, for sure. But that keeps us on our toes, trying to find innovations, trying to find other ways of combining elements and materials to make them more sustainable. Because there's concern about where lithium comes from and the supply chain issues around lithium. So, you know, that's what I think engineers need to think deep about supply chains. In doing so, we can think about not just what's the supplier I'm going to get this from, but what is the larger impact on the thing I'm developing and designing right now and, and in the future. So great insights here. Salim, I'm sure there's going to be people who want to connect with you or find more information about your book and the other work that you're involved in. Where would you point them to find more information? 
Yes, well, they can certainly go to my website, salimali.net, and that has material about me and also uh, my books and where to get them. My book, Earthly Order, which is another one of my recent books, I'm donating all the royalties for environmental education programs. So I really appreciate the audience uh, engaging and follow me on social media, uh, LinkedIn. I have a weekly, uh, bi-weekly newsletter there where I share some of these efforts. So thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here and we wish you nothing but continued success as you continue to work on some of these important problems and, and get the message out. So thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you, Jeff. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and questions. You can go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in the episode as well as links to any of the resources or websites that we mentioned in the episode. And don't forget to check out any upcoming live webinars for this month at the website as well. Additionally, for any engineers who feel like they need extra help taking the next career step or finding clarity in their careers, I've created some free training resources with an opportunity to join a more intensive program called the Engineering Career Accelerator. You can find more information at engineeringcareeraccelerator.com or you can go grab my career clarity checklist found at www.engineeringcareeraccelerator.com career clarity. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.